Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Doug Cartwright. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Thanks, Richard. Great to be here. Doug is somebody I've known for a long time. I got to know Doug when he was going to high school. I think you were a really good golfer mm-hmm. and a really good football player Thank at you. our local high school. Doug is 31 years old, um, not married. Um, not that that should define him. <laughs> Um, he's going to talk in this podcast about his just journey to find um, happiness. And it's been a fair, it's been a journey that I think will help you, our listeners. Doug grew up in the LDS church, served a mission, is an early release missionary. We may talk about that. Ended up leaving the church. He's resigned from the church. His records are no longer with the church. But Doug is deeply spiritual and has great principles that can help other people find God. And, it's, and also those that have, are really struggling to find self-love and maybe suicidal. So there's a lot of differences between Doug and I, potentially, but this is a podcast where we're coming together as the same human family to support each other and to find common principles that help us each grow and thrive. And as I visited with Doug before we went live, he's just a really good guy um, who is helping a lot of people. And I just honor his journey and the good man that he is and the things that he's doing. We talked about Doug in an earlier podcast where Braden Orgill talked about his feelings of suicide and feeling pressed to reach out to Doug. And that lunch with Doug changed Braden's life and has got him in a great spot. And um, I just think the things that Doug will share will help you. How's that from a bio standpoint? I think we're, we're, we're right on there. Yeah. Talk about, just at the beginning, we're going to talk about this at the end, but talk about the company you started and its focus and how people can find that. Yeah, so I am the founder and CEO of The Daily Shifts, and The Daily Shifts started as an app in the App Store, so you can actually download the app right now. Um, but what it's really turned into, you know, you mentioned that conversation with Brayden. Um, I went on a long spiritual journey, which we'll talk about, and in that journey... I did some really weird things and I did some crazy stuff all over the world. And I learned a lot of valuable skills and tools. Um, and along the way, I had a lot of people reach out to me and ask how, you know, what did I learn? And included was Braden in that conversation. I also had another friend, Sam, who I helped her get out of a really tough relationship. And now she's engaged to the love of her life. And I had another friend, Sophie, who was uh, really struggling in her personal life and having suicidal thoughts. And she was also be able to pull out. And I kind of realized, I'm like, wow, I'm having a major impact on a lot of people's lives. And so the Daily Shifts now is, as well as the app, but an online course where I created a 90-page workbook where any user can go in and go through this online course in these 10 modules and do this workbook and find the answers they're looking for and learn self-love and really shift their life, right, into life full of love and enthusiasm and joy and happiness. And tell our listeners the website. Yeah. So right now, um, and you guys will hear the story, but um, go to the dailyshifts.com forward slash LLL um, for your for the name of your podcast. And I've marked it down 65% for your listeners. So it's normally a $600 course. We're doing it for under 200. And that is a, it's a 10 week program that really is going to help you break through just, you know, the breakthroughs we saw with Braden and my friend, Sam and our friend, Sophie. So really excited to share that with your listeners. So I'm glad you're doing that. And I, I just recognize the fruits of your labors when you, Braden's episode 326, if any listeners want to go listen to that, 
um, Braden's in a really good spot and talks about how his lunch with you and the things you taught him helped him. Yeah. Uh, talk about, um, I mean, I've, we sat before we did this podcast and I really got caught up with Doug. I mean, yeah. we've known each other on social yeah, media. Yeah. Our kids were never the same age. So I've just been aware of you and yeah. we've been friends on social media and I've seen great success, but you just started and you've had great success. And then the last year or so you were pretty honest about suicide. Mm-hmm. And I thought that I, I thought that was a real credit to you to be so honest about that. And now you're in a really good spot. So just kind of take us back to um, this success void. Um, Cause I remember you working for Vivint. Right. And I just would see you all over the country mm. doing great things <laughs> and having a lot of success with Vivint. Take us back to that chapter of your life. Yeah. So I guess the story, how it really kicks off, you know, looking back, it's fun to kind of yeah, connect start the dots. Wherever you want to start. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important to note, you know, along my journey, I grew up in Holiday, Utah. Um, we're in the same stake and grew up with a very loving household, very supportive parents, loving brothers and sisters, growing up playing sports. And I was kind of, you know, in high school, I felt like I was like the all-star of the community, right? I was student body vice president, captain of the football team. And I was probably have held some leadership role in the church, you know, teachers, quorum, president or whatever, whatever those things are. And my ward was really fun. Um, all, and it was great because I had three of my best friends all lived on the same street that I did. And so like mutual was awesome because we we have really cool advisors, you know, Dave Aaron, Stan Hansen, and like we're traveling to California for our summer trips. I mean, it was incredible. And so my junior high and high school days, I was it was the best, like church was great. And, you know, you always kind of lead up to your mission and that's kind of like what you're supposed to do. Um, and so graduated from high school and all of our friends start going on missions. And I, you know, went through the process and got my mission call and got called to New Zealand and everyone was super excited and everything was just right on track. Like I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do and everything that we're, we should do is, as Mormon LDS men and um, but you know, looking back at it now, um, at those times in my life, it's very glaring because where I'm at now on a spirituality sense, I was not spiritual. And I think a lot of young men probably aren't, they're just kind of disconnected. They don't kind of really understand the depth of, of what spirituality can be. Um, but I remember going to the MTC and I hadn't even read the book of Mormon. Um, and I remember we were like, I was in some class and I had to like raise my hand. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I have no idea what we're talking about. I need like a fundamentals. And so they actually pulled me out of class and actually gave me like my own special teacher who just gave me like a history timeline of the Book of Mormon. And I just had like no clue. But I was just like, this is what I'm, I'm supposed to be here because everyone says I'm supposed to be here. Um, so my mission was great. Like got out was in New Zealand. It was incredible. The people of New Zealand are amazing. I love my mission. I need to go back. I haven't visited. Um, and then about nine months into my mission, I had a friend who was about to get his mission call and he emailed me and he was like, Hey, I slipped up with a girl. I'm going to have to postpone my mission for six months. And I remember reading that email and I'm like, uh Oh, I'm like, there was some stuff I left before I mission that I didn't really get super clear with. But at the time it happened before I left, I didn't think it was like a mission deal breaker. So I kind of like swept it under the rug. And so I'm like, 
at this point in my mission, I was a senior companion. I was a trainer. I was like diehard, you know, uh, moving, moving through the ranks. And I remember thinking like, I should clean this up and had no, not the thought of going home didn't even cross my mind. It was just like, I should clean this up just so I can get off my conscious. So I can, I remember thinking best case scenario, slap on the wrist, worst case scenario, I might be a junior companion again. So let's just handle this now. Right. Cause I had another really good friend on the mission who did something similar and they didn't send him home. They just demoted him to junior companion. Different mission, same mission. Um, so it wasn't the friend I went out with. It was a friend that I had met in New Zealand. Okay. So another elder in my mission who I was really close with came out with some stuff and I heard he got demoted to a junior companion again. So I'm like, okay, I'll probably, that's probably what's going to happen to me. So call up stake pres or the mission president at the time. And I'm like, yeah, there's some stuff I seem to get clear with. And so he's like, can you come in? It was, I was close to the mission office. I told him everything. And he's like, wow, I got to take this to the brethren. I'm like, what? Like, and it wasn't anything drastic, you know, in my mind, I didn't think it was drastic. And then the next day he called me and he's like, we have to send you home. And I was like, no way, like no way. So hopped on a plane two days later back in Utah. Wow. And, uh, I remember, you know, there's all this talk. I had a lot of friends or people in my network, at least who had been sent home from their mission early. And it was always, they kind of just felt like there was so much shame and guilt around it. And they would like hide in their parents' basement. And it was always like, oh, he's sick, you know, or he's had anxiety. And there's just so much shame. And it was like, it almost felt like gossipy, you know, in the community of like, oh, did you hear so-and-so came home early? And it just, that was just like, like had a negative, heavy energy around other people's experience. And I didn't want any of that. So coincidentally, the first Sunday I was back was fast Sunday. And so church like kicks off. I'm the first one to walk up to the pulpit. And I literally said, I'm like, Hey, I'm home. I want everyone here to know that I'm working on myself. I made a mistake before I left and I'm working on it. And I just hope you all hear it from my mouth. It's cool. that, that's why I'm home. And I take full responsibility for it. You're a stand up guy. Way to go. And because my biggest thing was like, I don't want people gossiping and, you know, throwing stuff and there's people saying I'm sick or just, they're all that heavy energy that comes with it. And I also realized I'm like, if I go up and own this, like people aren't going to criticize me. You know, it's one of my favorite quotes is like the best way to remove criticism is to accept it. If you just accept the criticism, then people can't really criticize you anymore. You're like, yeah right. I got sent home and then conversation's over. So I did that. But at the same time, that was the first time in my life where I wasn't like this stand up citizen community member anymore. And I think subconsciously there was some shame there. I was kind of like, wait, do I really fit in here? Because before I was the man and now it's like, I'm now I'm the guy. Now the label is I'm the guy that got home from my mission early. Um, so interesting enough, of course, I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get back out there. So I'm supposed to do right. Doing what I'm supposed to do, following the rules, right. Um, supposed to go back out. And so I, uh, would go a couple months and I'd screw up and go about months and I'd screw up. And ironically, which now turns into be like one of the greatest blessings from God 
was maybe about six months after I'd been home, maybe a little bit longer, my dad gets diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Wow. And that is just like anyone who's experienced that, you know, it's like your whole life changes at that moment. And 18 months later, he ended up passing away. But the first year of after his diagnosis, you would have never known he was sick. He was still golfing. We were still traveling. He had high energy. And looking back, it's like I would have missed majority of my dad's last good years if I would have stayed on my mission. And looking back, I'm so grateful I was not home. I love that. Now. Um, because, you know, I cherish those moments with my dad. Me and my dad were so close. I remember your dad being yeah. at all those Cottonwood games. And, oh, yeah. You know, I've been in your home, met your dad, Scott, and mm-hmm. just have, you know, your dad obviously tons better than me, but I just sense he was really involved. Yeah, really involved, very supportive. I mean, he was the Booster Club president. Yeah, at Cottonwood, that's right. right. That's right. Very involved, very supportive. Not just to me, but all of us as kids. And so to think that I would have missed if I would have come home for my mission to a, a dad sick in bed, no, that'd been devastating. Yeah. And so I am, I am grateful for, for those last years I was able to get with him. I think you do a good job of talking about how difficult it is to come home for a mission. And I've, I've just met a lot of people and you have two that have come home for a mission. And it's mm-hmm. just, I think culturally we've got to improve mm-hmm. because you talk about being in, so many being in their basement, they don't want to go back to church. It's such yeah. a difficult experience for them. I love that you just owned your story yeah, and just got up there. And I've recognized that sometimes members are curious that we sort of rank reasons for coming home. Uh-huh. Like, you know, sinning on your mission, sinning before and not confessing it, medical, emotional. Right. COVID's another reason people come home. And I don't, for listeners, I don't think we should rank all those. And I don't mm-hmm. think we should even look at a missionary that's come home and try to figure out the backstory. I don't think that's what God wants us to do. I think he yeah. just wants us to, our job isn't to figure out the backstory or try to gossip, to use your word. Right. We just should love everybody and know that right. they're doing the best they can and help them fill the balm of Gilead at probably the time they need it the most mm-hmm. in our families and our communities. And so that's a difficult road to navigate. But yeah. I love that you spent your last time, this last yeah, it's, period you know, of time with your dad. You know, it's interesting looking back on it. You know, it's like, it just goes to the same. You can't really predict how life's going to play out. You know, I think anyone listening to this can agree with that. You know, if you said five years ago, could you have predicted what you're doing right now and the way you got there? And I'm confidently say no one listening can say, yes, I know exactly what I was going to do. And this is exactly the right happened. I mean, just think like, Six months ago, we didn't even know what COVID was. And now it's all affected of our lives. And so that's just how life works is you can't predict. And so going along those lines, it's like, okay, I lost my dad. I was looking for a new, I was kind of lost. And what I did that a lot of people, I think will help. I can speak to a lot of people is I didn't deal with my dad dying. I pretended like it didn't happen. Talk about that. I remember there was one night where it was before my dad died and he was, he had hospice care and the nurse was like, he's in his last days. And it might've been the night or two. And I remember sitting outside his door with my mom and my mom put her arm around me. And then I just, I just let loose and I just started sobbing and crying and I just let it all out just for, and then I remember as soon as I started crying, I immediately had shame for crying. I remember thinking like, okay, I need to be the tough guy. I need to be the support for my mom. Like, stop crying, stop crying. Why are you crying? And I immediately like kind of like sobered up. 
and like held it all together and realized that, okay, I guess I'm this young, tough football player kid. I have to be the strong one. And so that emotion, you know, we all have these emotions and it was coming out of me and I stopped it. I literally in the middle of that crisis, just like cut it off and just pushed it down, 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 down into the closet. And for literally eight years, seven years, I didn't deal with my dad's death. Pretend like it didn't happen. If anyone started to talk about it, I changed the subject. I didn't know what to say. It's almost just like speaking on deaf or deaf ears to me. <clears throat> and so, yeah, suppression's another thing, you know, that a lot of people do. And, and when we suppress our emotions long enough, they're going to come out. And it might come out in anger or it might come out in other ways or depression or anxiety and we, or we freak out or we have these releases and it's just emotion that's been trapped inside of our bodies for so long that it's just, it finds another way out and we use other vices. I know on your podcast, you've had people about pornography issues or substance abuse issues. And that's usually a lot of way people mask the emotions they've never dealt with. It's a great insight. Yeah. And so... I started suppressing my dad's death, um, which of course, I mean, it's, it, it, I, been, I was never taught how to deal with your emotions. No one ever taught me how to do it. And so I just did what I thought it was supposed to be natural. And so, but around that exact same time, I ran and I met an amazing mentor named Casey who worked at Vivint. Um, and he really took me under his wing. Like this guy stepped in and he was the first person to introduce me to personal development and goal setting and being ambitious and a lot of self-help books and taught me, he was the beginning teacher that taught me the sales skills. And I naturally had a really good ability of presence and being able to communicate. And then I was able to kind of transmute that into a sales tactic as well. And it crossed over very well in the sales world. And I became very, very successful salesman. And so in my early twenties, I started making tons of money. But to give the story a little bit more context, what happens, you know, when I started making a lot of money, what really was going on was, and I wasn't aware of this at the time, but growing up as a football player, and whatnot, I was always the fat kid. And that's a story that I told myself is, you know, if we're talking, if those who listen to the podcast about Braden, you know, that I talked about, you know, you got to change your story. You know, when I was in second grade, I never forget, I was at school. And this older fifth grader kid made fun of me for wearing a size extra large shorts as a second grader. And that was the first time I'm like, oh, is there something, there's something wrong with me? I'm the fat kid. And that's a story that I accepted my story. And it played out over and over and over and over again as the fat kid. And so when I'm the fat kid in junior high, I'm not getting attention from girls. So I now believe I'm unlovable because something's wrong with my body. And so I have to come up with these other vices to get validation right? And so I become the nice guy or I become a really good communicator or I'm really good at girls will talk to me about their problems and I'll just listen. So I got to like get validation somehow. So that's been built up. I'm unaware of this story at this point in my life in my early twenties, get into Vivint, start making tons of money. So now that I have an asset, right? What do I do with it? I then have to show people that I'm lovable. So what do I do? I start spending tons of money on other people to show you why you should love me. So I would go on extravagant first dates, like first date with the girl, we're sitting front row, I'm picking up in my new Mercedes, we're eating at Ruth's Chris, like thousands of dollars on a 
girl who I just barely met. And all I'm really doing is that and I'm screaming inside, love me. Someone please love me. And I know something's wrong with me because you can see it. You can see that I'm overweight, right? So I have to show you and prove to you in other ways why you should love me. Oh, I have all this money because I'm a good salesman and I just blew it. And I, you, like you said, you saw I was all over the country having good times. What I was doing is I was, I was so, I had such a void deep in my, like deep in the core of my soul. I had such a void that I tried everything I could and gather material things to fill that void. And it's a term I've now coined is the success void. So I'm going first class. I'm traveling around the world. I'm going to Nepal. I'm going to Australia. I'm going to Bali. I'm sitting front row at every major sporting event, the World Series, Super Bowl. the NBA Finals. Super Bowls and NBA Finals. Yeah. And I was literally in a suite with Kevin Durant, NBA Finals MVP. Me and him are sharing a suite. He's sitting next to me. I'm talking to him the whole game. I post a picture. I missed one of the greatest Super Bowls of all time. It was the Super Bowl where the Seahawks threw the interception at the one-yard line. It was that game. And I was busy looking at how many likes my picture was getting. So honest. Right? It's like, please notice me. Look, I'm at the Super Bowl with Kevin Durant. Notice me, love me, right? This void was so transparent. It was just suffocating me. And I missed an incredible moment because I was worried about likes and comments on Instagram. And so I'm spending all of this energy and money to fill this success void. And it just got deeper and deeper and deeper. And along the same times, I kind of had really never made it back to church. Um, I would go and it, it, I, I, got, I got trouble. I've been disfellowshipped twice. I got disfellowshipped in my mid-20s. And it was all similar stuff. It's just all sexual, tra- uh, sexual transgression with women. And, and uh, it happened over and over and over again. And then they're finally there. I was, I was about to get excommunicated because I had gone through the temple. And I was just like, I could never, I just never fit in. Like I could never get it right. And I'm supposed to suppress these natural human emotions. And I've got my dad's stuff I haven't dealt with. And once again, it's the fat kid stuff, right? And so I have an opportunity to be with a woman, right? And it's like, please love me, you know? And so I'm not dealing with my emotions led to this kind of the spiral out. And so I never really got back into the church thing. And that was the same time, like a lot of the Prop 8 stuff was coming out. That did not sit well with me. And it's actually, this was a fascinating story was in college, um, there was someone uh, who, I was a finance major at the University of Utah. And there was someone who, we kind of were graduating at the same time. So we had a lot of the same classes and we would do homework together. And and he was a friend of a friend and he was kind of a cool dude. And, you know, after maybe a year and a half of knowing him, one day saw on his Facebook post that he actually came out as gay. And I like, could not believe it. I was like, whoa, like, no way this guy. I would have never guessed in a million years. And at the same time, I've kind of taught at this point in my life, I've kind of taught, was taught that homosexuality is a choice. And I'm like, why would he choose to do that? You know, kind of just in this, in this mindset we were taught. And so I remember I actually was kind of nervous, but I saw him in class like a couple of days later. And after class, we start talking and he told me, and this completely changed my paradigm. He said, Doug, if I could take a pill that would turn me straight, 
I would pay a million dollars for it. I would work the rest of my life to earn that pill. That's how hard it is to be homosexuality and homosexual in the church. And that was like the first time I was like, whoa, like this isn't a choice. Like I could see the sorrow and the shame and the guilt and the pain in this friend's eyes. And like, he's not doing this on purpose. And so that was kind of like when things weren't starting to line up for me. And I did some other research and I looked into church history and the Prop 8 thing and looked into CES letter and kind of just your typical stuff that isn't new to much people here. And I, it really just wasn't, there wasn't any spite. There wasn't any, I wasn't mad at the church. A lot of my family members had left the church too. And so it wasn't a very rigorous household where I was like completely getting get disowned from the family. Um, and so I always tell people, you know, my transition out of the church was actually pretty seamless. You know, my mom was the, it was the, hard, the hardest part was we're ta- talking to my mom. She's such an... Yeah, ob- tell our listeners about yeah, your mom. She's the most obedient, loving. I always tell people, I'm like, if women could be prophets, my mom would be a prophet. Like, and I still think she's going to speak in general conference one day. I really still think that. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Marge. She's so pure, non-judgmental, so loving. I, she's literally the purest human on the planet. And I, I totally believe that. And everyone thinks that, that about their mom, but I'm not telling you my mom, it's my mom, not your mom, you know, right. <laughs> but, um, so pure, so sweet. She's never like seen a rated R movie. She's never said a swear word. She's never tasted caffeine. And she's just always so full of love and joy and service. And so the hardest part was really talking to her about it. Um, so I'm at this kind of turning point in my life. This is when I'm like 27. And I'm fully feeling the success void. And I'm kind of hit my ceiling in my career. I've made a ton of money, completely empty. Um, Deep down in the closet is my dad's death I still haven't dealt with. It's in there and it's going to start to boil up. Um, Don't, I I removed my records from the church and I don't subscribe to the LDS faith anymore. And so what a lot of people don't realize though, the difficult part of a faith transition with leaving the church is I wasn't prepared for the existential crisis. Because one thing I always say, because I have the I have the LDS, you know, the, the Mormon discussion with a lot of friends that are still active. And I said, if I could prove to you that the Mormon, and I can't, by the way, but if I could prove to you that the Mormon church is not true, would you even want to know? Because think what comes with that, right? Your whole purpose of existence up until this point is now up for debate. And I was not ready for that. So I removed the Mormon church, right? It's not a part of who I am and I don't believe in it. So now all of a sudden I'm like, wait, what's going on on this planet? Like, how did we get here? Why are we on this rock orbiting a star hurling through the universe? Like how, what is going on? Like what happens when I die, right? And there was like this deep pit in my stomach of like, I felt like a literal ant in a cosmic ocean. Cause for so long, I just had all these pre taught rules or of what's supposed to happen. And so I'm at this point in my life where careers has a success void. Dad's death's boiling up. I don't even know who I am. If I don't 
if I don't subscribe to the label as Mormon anymore, like, what does that even mean? What, what's going on? What, what's the purpose of human life? And around the same time, um, a couple of months earlier, I'd gone into a relationship with this girl and it was beautiful and soulful. And we were both super spiritual and, and connected. And I knew when people say, Hey, you'll know when you know, when you find the one I'm like, Oh, I get it now. Like, I know I for sure know. Like I, when people talk about true love and I'm like, I get why people write songs and poems and make movies about love. Cause love is the most beautiful thing in the world. And this girl's going to be the mother of my children for sure. 100% for sure. No doubt about it. And out of the blue, literally out of the blue, she breaks up with me. And she doesn't even give me, the, the reason she said, she says, quote, my soul is telling me we're not supposed to be in a romantic relationship anymore. So now I lost the love of my life. I don't even know why I'm on the planet. I have success at work and my dad's death is boiling up. And I got to a really, really, really dark spot. And it was the first time in my life, and this is summer of 2018, that I experienced suicidal thoughts. And suicide is such an interesting thing to me because when I first had suicidal thoughts, my initial thought was that I was weak for having them, that something was wrong with me. And just because my girlfriend broke up with me, that's not a good enough excuse why to have suicidal thoughts. And so I really beat myself up. Like, I can't believe I'm so weak. Like, why would I have those thoughts? It wasn't that big of a deal. It's just a girlfriend. Why can't you just man up? And I got to a really, really depressed dark spot where literally, and I, and I get it now when people talk about depression and anxiety, where I, I was out selling again for Vivint that summer. And I was basically by myself in Arkansas and the most depressed I've ever been having suicidal thoughts. And I remember being in a meeting um, a sales meeting and feeling this wave, like this dark wave come over me. And it was literally physically suffocating. Like, I feel like I couldn't get air and I had to like run out of the meeting and I just, I was panicking and it was, and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm having a panic attack. I'm getting panic attacks. Like I get why that happens. And it was a really, really dark time in my life. And I'll never forget, I was walking down the street one day and there was a red Corvette ripping around the corner pretty quick. And my first thought was like, I hope this guy doesn't see me and hits me and kills me because then it's a freak accident and I wasn't a coward and it just was, and I, I didn't go out. I didn't pull the trigger myself. And then this whole thing can be over. And I remember thinking like, wow, I'm in a really scary place. And then I never forget, probably a day later, I took the day off of work and I went on a hike in Arkansas to this beautiful waterfall. And I'm like, okay, I know people feel depression. I know people feel anxiety. And it's a real thing now. I get it. And I remember thinking, what can I do to mitigate my risk? Because it's going to be bad in here for a while, it feels like. You know, for me to get over a breakup, to get over this, it's going, to, it's going to be a while. So what can I do to mitigate the risk? What can I control? I need to control the controllables. So I need to control things that make me feel really good. Right? So I need to be sleeping eight hours every night. I need to be eating as healthy as possible. I need to meditate 
I was meditating three to four times a day for 20 minutes. Journaling really helped me. Getting outside in nature really helps me as well, right? Working with a professional. I had no shame in reaching out for help. Talking to my therapist. And I'm like, I can control those things. I can't control my thoughts, right? I can't control the negative flow that's suffocating me, but I can control these things. And then every morning I'd write down on my journal, the best thing I can do for myself today is blank. Some days, because I was, I was out selling alarm systems, it'd be sell two accounts today. And that's a really hard thing to do. And some days I could do it. Some days it'd be like, the best thing I could do for myself today is just get out of bed and make my bed. And some days it'd be the best thing I can do for myself is go for a walk in the park and get some fresh air and stay hydrated, right? So I wanted to take control of the things I could control. And I really started chipping away at getting out of this deep, dark tunnel because I realized no one's coming to save me. Like the only way out is through. Like I can't cheat my way out of this. It reminds me of the quote, like you can't have someone do your push-ups for you. You can buy a book on push-ups. You can buy an online class on push-ups. You can talk to the best push-up guy in the world, right? You can buy all the new clothes, but at the end of the day, you have to do the push-ups. And so the truth is same here in this work. Like I'm in this deep, dark depression. I have to do the work, right? Because it was triggering all of these really intense emotions for me. And so at this point, I'm like, hey, I need to figure out what's going on in my life. So I started going down really crazy avenues. And I spent almost $100,000 doing these retreats and meeting with these people. Like I, I started, I'm like, okay, if the Mormon church to me isn't true, right? Who's claiming that they've got spirituality? And let's go figure that, figure it out. And so I started doing yoga retreats in Bali and I signed up for silent meditation retreats. And I hired a spiritual guru and I went to Burning Man. I did you know, psychedelic plant medicine ceremonies in Peru and worked with shamans in Mexico and tried to like figure out what was going on. And I learned so much valuable stuff. I mean, I was working with like astrologists too and psychics. I was doing anything you could think of. Like if someone claimed they could help me feel better, whether it was crystals or whatever. I'm like, cool, let's see if this works. And so I was like, basically, I felt like I was an experimental rat for a while. And I'm like, well, see if this works and see if this works. There was a lot of hokey stuff out there that's crazy. Like I've done some crazy stuff that's probably not appropriate for this podcast. <laughs> but along the ways, I also learned some really, really incredible, valuable tools. So it's like I almost went down this deep, scary, crazy rabbit hole pulled out all of the good, left the junk. And now I have this really incredible skill set. And so I started applying these things. So for example, something I learned, you know, is the power of our stories and healing the unprocessed trauma that we have as kids. And so for me, when I talked about it, all this stuff was boiling up, it's like, yeah, I was sexually abused when I was six years old. Hmm. I was six years old and I was sexually abused. I'd never dealt with that before. And I had to come clean to that. And I had to come clean of being the fat kid and that I was unlovable and I had to heal that story. And I had to heal the story that something was wrong with me. And I had to deal, I had to deal with the emotion of my dad dying. Yeah. Cause I had all of this stuff just stored deep, 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 deep down inside of me. 
and it was blowing up and it was causing me to go through a, a spiral tailwind. So um, I started doing all this stuff and I was, it was such, such an eye-opener, eye-opening experience for me testing all this new stuff. And I just started sharing my story with friends and posting little snippets on Instagram and like, I'd have a breakthrough on this new idea. And so I would share it and I would get really excited. And just a lot of friends and family like reached out to me because I realized a lot of other people were in pain too. And I'm like, hey, I, I know how to fix that. I know, I know, I know how to deal with that. And I really learned that the way you fill the success void is true self-love. And because so often than not, we seek validation from others. We care what people think about us. And as long as, and I call it outsourcing your happiness. So many, so often we outsource our happiness to others. And we live in happy when syndrome. You know, happy when syndrome is I'll be finally happy when I get married or when I get a better job or when I pay off my debt or when I do that trip to Hawaii or when I get the new Mercedes, then I'll be happy. And as long as you outsource your happiness to external things, you'll never be happy. And true happiness comes from self within. But before you can truly love yourself, you have to deal with that trauma and that void that's within you. Talk about dealing with the trauma. So if there's people listening that recognize they've got undealt with trauma and you yeah. went through, you're really good at just being honest, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is what we try to do on this podcast. You even brought up being a survivor, a victim of sexual abuse. Yeah. I didn't know that until right then. And yeah. you've talked very transparently about why your mission ended and your father's yeah. death, but just talk about how to, pro- you know, people that recognize they've got all this unprocessed trauma, but just don't know how to deal with it. They know yeah. it's pushed down and they've just never developed the skill set. Talk yeah. to them. So we all, first and foremost, your trauma is valid. Whoever's listening, it's very valid. Don't rank trauma. You don't have to rank it. It could be something as silly as, to me, a boy called me fat when I was in second grade. But I so also, if I say, just get over it, it's not a big deal. That doesn't, that's doesn't work. No, you have to deal with it. There's a part of you that was, you know, you think about, so the way to first off, how to analyze your trauma, right? People are like, okay, well, cause I, when I, before I got into healing work, I'm like, I don't have any trauma. I had a great childhood. But the question you ask yourself is, what would you be so ashamed of if people found out about you? What's your deep, dark secret? Like, what are you hiding from the world? Is it, you have an addiction to pornography? Is it you have addiction with substance abuse? Is it you're the fat kid? Is it you have immense amounts of debt? Is it you cheated on a spouse? You know, whatever that is, right? That's your trauma. And so how you deal with it is you have to go, you have to pretend, you have to ask yourself, where did I learn this? Right? So for me, my trauma was I didn't feel like I was good enough that something was wrong with me and therefore I'm unlovable. Where did I learn that? I learned that as being the fat kid. Because so something's physically wrong with me. This is my kind of a very simple exercise. Then you ask yourself, when was the first time you took on that label? When was the first time I felt like I was a fat kid? Or when was the first time you felt like you weren't smart enough? Or when was the first time you weren't good enough? Or when was the first time you had shame about something? What was the very first incident, you mem- a memory you can remember? And that's where the story started. There's a reason you have that you remember those. Think about all the events that happened when you were a kid. You don't remember 99% of them, but you remember the one. 
event where this event occurred. And that's when your story started. And so, and now, now that you've diagnosed where your story is, you need to validate that version of yourself. So I have to go all the way back to second grade Doug and be like, hey, let's talk about what's going on here, right? The kid who called you fat, more than likely, he was a, he was a really scrawny kid. More than likely, he was projecting his own trauma onto me. He might've felt that he's only in fifth grade and he's small and he's petite and I don't know what's going on at home, right? And more than likely, him calling me the fat kid had nothing to do with me. Wow. Because we all project our trauma onto other people, wow. right? It's a quote, hurt people hurt people, Yeah. right? And so now I have to give all the love to second grade Doug and let him know that he's enough and he's lovable. And then once I do that, then I go to the next piece of trauma. For me, it was when I was sexually abused when I was six, right? And what's crazy is how that story, this is, and I'll dive into it. It's actually a pretty intense story. It was sexual abuse. It wasn't malicious. It was a neighbor kid who was a couple years older than me who was curious, right? It wasn't like my, the dad across the street who was, you know, it was very innocent, uh, curious abuse. But I felt very violated. I didn't know what was going on. I remember feeling frozen and he'd pull my pants down and I didn't know what was going on. And he would, he would feel me and I just was, I, would, I was frozen. Trauma. Trauma, right? Completely frozen. And what's fascinating to me, and this is just work I've done this year, because you know, this, is, this, ta- this isn't something you're going to fix overnight, by the way, your trauma. It takes years and years and years of work. But as you get better, you know, the load starts to lift. Um, in junior high, he got in a car accident and died, this kid. Wow. And my first thought when I heard that was relief. I'm like, ah, oh, now no one will ever know. I can keep this secret with me forever. And I shoved it back down and I didn't deal with it. It's like, boom, now I've got, I'm the only one with the key and no one's getting in there. Right. And then a couple of years later, no, this was just three years ago. I was doing one of these plant medicine ceremonies in the jungle and this memory comes up. And I remember initially thinking up like, oh my gosh, I shouldn't be thinking about this. And during this experience, this really intense spiritual experience, it showed me what was going on in his personal life and why he was doing that and how this has really affected me in my life. And what I realized was it, it then showed me up at this point in my life, I'm 28, when I'm having this experience, I always had a difficult time making friends with guys. And I have a lot of quote unquote girl dash friends. Like a lot of my closest just dear platonic friends are women. And it showed me that that experience when I was six, the subconscious story I then took on was my best friend who's a guy is not safe. Men are not safe. And I played that out for over 20 years. And I always would have walls up with men when I would meet new friends at a party or something. I was almost kind of like a little standoffish. I didn't even realize at the time, but my subconscious story is men aren't safe. And I'd always, especially if I did start to become friends with guys, I would make some comment of like, oh, look at this pretty girl I'm dating. And what I really was doing was like, hey, I'm not a homosexual, so don't come on to me. Don't hurt me. Don't abuse me. And I had that moment in this medicine ceremony and it was like, whoa, 
And since that moment, I was able to really heal that version of myself and tell myself, hey, it's okay to be friends with guys. Like you can be friends with the boys, you know, the dudes. And since that moment, I've made incredible, beautiful relationships with other guys. And it was because a story I wasn't even consciously aware of that was playing out. And so this is the power. This is the thing that can happen when you really are willing to look at those parts of yourself they're not willing to look at. And we all have multiple stories. And then I started dealing with the loss of my dad and how that directed my whole life. And once I was able to really deal with that emotion and deal that he's gone and that's okay, I was able to move on from my life. And because we're carrying so many so many chains and balls and so much heavy material that it's just not worth carrying anymore. And you actually can release these burdens and release these, this heaviness that, around you. And once you do, it's, and you feel that void within yourself, it's like you literally live on a new planet. I tell people since I started doing my healing work, I feel like I live on an entirely new planet with such a deep, beautiful connection with God. It's hard to want to talk and interrupt, Doug, because yeah. you're really good at telling your story. Thank you. We've had a lot of people on the podcast, and you were unusually good about talking about trauma, mm-hmm. um, connecting the dots, and then pragmatically in your own life and what you're sharing with others, help other people overcome trauma. Thank you. I just think that there's a lot of trauma, and I think mm-hmm. men in particular push it down, and I think we need to learn to talk about trauma. Yeah. and and deal with it. It's part of the road to healing. And I love your journey too. And I love the way you, there's no shame about everything mm-hmm. you've talked about. Yeah. When you do the work, there's no more shame anymore. Yeah. So you've talking about really complicated things that a lot of people would never talk about, even with their best friend, let alone a right. podcast. And I sense you're so natural at talking about it as you've been doing this for a while. Yeah. I've been doing the work. Yeah. That's one thing I'm really proud of is like, I've done the work. I did the, I had the hard conversations. I looked at the ugly parts of my life. And I dealt with it. And because of the incredible transformative experience I've now had and results I've had because of it, I feel so motivated and so inspired to share that with others. And that's what that course is. So we talked about the beginning of the episode, like that course is modules of how to really dive into your story and heal your story and literally live a better life. And, you know, I'm not a licensed therapist, but I do have a lot of tools and techniques from personal experience that I would, I'm really excited to share with the world. I remember during YSA Bishop, I, I started to see a therapist. I've mm-hmm. talked about this on the podcast and I think uh, my emotional gas tank was pretty low, just mm-hmm. sitting with so many people in complicated stories and I'm honored to do that. But I started to take situations without a name to my therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and she taught me um, some really wonderful principles. She taught me the iceberg concept that often what the YSAs were talking about wasn't really what I needed to, you know, like pornography or messing up or all these different things. Sometimes they felt I needed to talk to me about. And sure, I believe those are sins and they should be dealing with those. But often the longer I served and the more I brought clinical people's expertise into my life, the more I recognized this is really about stuff that's bottom of the iceberg. Yeah, it's just the vice. Right? And they need to... F- and sometimes I could kind of go where there with them, even though I'm not clinically trained. I, but I tried, you know, to, I wish I would try to get them to the right kind of clinical people mm-hmm. or do the self-reflection or, in, and you have some wonderful tools and will help people. But I just think that's an important principle for parents, for each of us, for local leaders to often recognize what we're seeing on the top of the iceberg. And even if it's anger and, and hurt people, hurt other people. Mm-hmm. 
And I love the way you even recognize these things about people that hurt you. What you said about that skinny fifth grade boy. Yeah. Um, and why he was hurting you was probably part of healing to you and helping yeah. you understand. And it's so much empathy and understanding. And um, even that young man that abused you and later mm -hmm. died, I sense you tried to understand the full story of what was going on there. Yeah. But I love you also recognize I've learned that no one needs to justify their pain to me. They don't have to validate it. They don't have to explain it, even if I or trauma and say, well, that wouldn't be, what's the big deal? Mm. That just adds to the trauma and push, and causes them to push it back down if I respond that way. And I'm not, a, and so they think, well, that's, it's, you know, so they push it back down. And they, I think we have to develop the skills where someone bravely opens up or sends even little indications, a trial balloon, that there's something weird, real down there. Yeah. And that they're trying to assess, are you a safe person for me to process with? That we've mm -hmm. got to develop better skills so that people can open up and, and be able to heal. Yeah. And I think just, you know, with the daily shifts as a whole, is I just want it to be a landing spot for someone who is dealing with really intense issues where they can come in a safe manner and be able to, hopefully, you know, we can relieve some of the suffering that people are experiencing. Uh, talk about just finding common ground with people in the church and people yeah. not. Are you? Would you hope all people leave the church? Do I hope all people leave the church? Yeah. Absolutely not. Why? Since it's not your path. Yeah. It may have even caused you some of your trauma resulted mm -hmm. from being an early release missionary. Yeah. And, and that whole process, I assume, why, would, why do you not want everybody to leave? I The way I look at it is, you know, I, if I were to claim any type of religion or ideology now I would claim omnism, which basically says not one religion holds all the truth, but there is deep truths found in every religion. And I love the Ram Dass quote where he says, we're all just walking each other home. Right. And I see that I think we're all human beings, right? We're all, we're all spiritual beings having a human experience. And I'm a big believer in what the Mormons call the light of Christ. There is a piece of us and every single human that remembers the love of the creator and can recognize that. And that shows up in forms of whether it's the Holy Ghosts or you call it intuition or soul or whatever it may be. We all, we all know what we're talking about when I say intuition or the Holy Ghost. And so we all have this piece of what I think is the creator inside of all of us. And what we all seek during this human experience is we want to feel safe and a deep connection of love and connection and guidance from something that loves us more than we can even comprehend. And if your way of finding that is in the Mormon church, I love that. If your way of finding that is in yoga, I love that. If your way of finding that is in Hinduism or whatever it may be, I love that because we're all just seeking that connection. And when you can really, really tap into that connection yourself, it, it will guide you, you know? And I think one of my favorite sayings is one of my the biggest plot twist in my life, at least, was when I found out that the Holy, the Holy Ghost isn't Mormon. And I was able to step away from the church, kind of in a scary time, and build a relationship with God through my meditation practice, through my spiritual practice. And I felt the still small voice. I'm like, oh, it's always with me. And that has been such a blessing to me. So if you find that, in the Mormon church. That's so beautiful. And I celebrate that. 
I love that. And I have a lot of respect for that because um, some people leave the church and they feel like, you know, everybody should leave the church yeah. with them or it validates their path. And I just recognize the maturity and where you are is that you're so at peace with who you are and your whole path that you don't feel like you've got to pull everybody to your path um, outside the church. And I love, to me, that's a great place to be. Thank you. And it's a place to me where there's less fear and there's less divisiveness and there's just, you're seeing everybody as the same human family. Yeah. And you're not seeing some people as need of rescue. You're just, and so I think that's a great place to be. Thank you. I admire you for being there. And um, that's one of the goals of this podcast, just trying to find common ground mm-hmm. and differences. And I I love your story. I Thank mean, you. Five Me years too. ago, I would have, <laughs> I would have, I just honor where you are and I don't feel you're in need of rescue. I don't worry about your eternal salvation, Doug, to be honest. I just, one of the things I believe in our doctrine is it's, is just loving parents that love all of their children and want the best for them. And they seem to have been fine with 99% of their children being outside of the church that I'm in and deeply Mm -hmm. believe in and committed to. And so I'm just going to be fine with people finding different paths and, and I don't think that, and I just don't fear because I just see a loving God that has a plan for everybody. And, and so I just, I don't worry about you. Um, Thank you. It's not part of my, and I don't think it's part of my doctrine to worry about you. It's part of the doctrine that I believe in to show love and kindness and bring us together as the same human family. And I recognize the work that you've done. And I think it's remarkable that you've, while spirituality didn't work for you in the Mormon church, you, you were open enough to recognizing that needed to be part of your life. Yeah. You could have forever closed that door and say, well, I've done that. That didn't work. The LDS church didn't work for me. I've stepped away. I've taken my records removed. So I think I love that about your story is you just were thoughtful enough to say, I need that part of my life still. Well, the thing that's so ironic about that was when I stepped away, I'm like, okay, what's going on? And my question, I'm like, what's going on right now? Like, as far as scientifically, like we're on, we're, I have a human body. I'm, a, I'm aware that I have a human body. I know that I'm on a planet, right? So the scientists tell us. So I'm like, I'm going to go study like astrophysics. Like how did this get here? And so I did this deep dive for months into astronomy and physics and science. And it was startling. The, the cosmic scale of the universe was so grand and the scientific probability of this moment even occurring, Right was so beyond comprehension that it actually showed me, I'm like, there's a creator. Interesting. There's no way this just happened. Like it is so incomprehensible that this just happened. So I'm like, there's something bigger than us that I can't see, but I can feel it. I can feel my intuition, right? But I can't see. I mean, if you just look at like, for example, the electromagnetic spectrum, that's all of the or the wavelength spectrum, right? It's from gamma rays, X-rays, delta waves. So visible light of the electromagnetic spectrum, things we can see is less than 1% of the entire spectrum. We only see less than 1% of stuff that's going on. And so I'm like, there's more. Like I, I know there's more to it. And so, and then I, that really got me, my mind racing to some science nerd stuff real quick is when I was studying 
the DNA composition of chimpanzees, they're 99% the same as humans. So if I have a DNA strip of a chimp and a DNA strip of a human, it's 99% the same. But in that 1% difference, right, you will never, Richard, be able to pull out your iPhone, FaceTime a chimp, say, hey, dinner's at six. Can you stop by the store? We'll pick up some pizza. I also need you to get a swing by Whole Foods and grab some milk. I'll meet you here in an hour. It's never going to happen in that 1% difference, right? So given the scale of the universe, we've, we've discovered roughly 2 trillion different galaxies. And the scientific probability that there's other life out there, I think it's almost 100%. And in the, in the LDS faith, they talk about there's life out there, right? What if we find a species that's 1% smarter than us? They will take our smartest human of all time. And it'll be cute to him. Like, oh, cute. Stephen Hawking can do astrophysics. I want to see the iPhone. Right. In, in another, right? In that world. Right. So given that scale, right? A 1% difference, how fascinating and much more expansive our minds are, right? I think God's mind is infinitely smarter than ours. So f- it's, that's, it's so beyond what I could ever think. So to think that I can fully grasp what the true nature of God is, I think is kind of ignorant. It's so beyond anything we could imagine. If there's just that one big 1% gap between an ape and a human, God's infinitely wiser than us. There's no way I think we could ever understand the true nature of God, given the, the mental restrictions of our mind. I love that. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, for you that are active Latter-day Saints, wondering if Doug's program could help you, um, or if you're worried that it's somehow because Doug's not in the church, it's going to pull you out of the church. I just point to Braden, um, who was on the podcast and came into your program pretty mm-hmm. suicidal. Yeah. And a committed Latter-day Saint, left your program, committed Latter-day Saint, mm-hmm. and not suicidal, with a whole paradigm shift Yeah, um, that was so helpful to him. So yeah, and I, I just recognize the work you're doing is is not just for a certain group of people no. based on their belief or non-belief. It's, it's fundamental healing work um, that is helping people overcome difficult things. Yeah. And I would say is it, you know, if I have private clients that work with me that want a little bit more in depth than just the course, actually want to work with me individually weekly. And I have a lot of LDS yeah. clients and this does not, this will not affect religion by any means. If anything, it'll deepen and strengthen your personal relationship with God and, and the Holy Ghost. Talk to, you've got a wonderful mom we've talked mm-hmm. about. Did she go by Marge or Marjorie? Margie. Margie. Yeah. And she's a close family friend. My wife and your mom are really, really close. And she is dealing with what a lot of LDS parents may be dealing with is children that have stepped away from the church. Yeah. And before we went live, you talked about how close you are with your mom. Yeah, very close. And your mom's maybe made some mistakes along the way, but it sounds like the totality of her relationship with you is great. Oh, it's phenomenal. And I it's think... Phenomenal. Just give advice for parents um, that have children that have left the church. Because um, your mom's done some really good things to keep, you know, you and the family circle together. Talk to those parents. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, that was so beautiful was... I, I, I can say now, when I was a member of the LDS faith... I never had a relationship with God, and, but I wasn't aware of it at the time because if I, if I never had a relationship with God, I didn't know what it was like. And so 
I, I felt lost. I felt confused. I felt like I didn't fit in. Um, for me, I did the work and I was able to build a relationship with the creator. And it's so beautiful. And it's the most important relationship in my life. And I had a conversation with my mom where, you know, I knew I was going to break her heart when I told her I left the church. But I had to be true to me. And I think she is so grateful. And she said to me that she is so grateful that I have a relationship with God now. And she sees the change in me. She sees that I'm kinder and more patient and more empathetic and more loving and helping people, you know, that have been in difficult situations and have had suicidal thoughts and helping them get out, you know, and find love. And I think she wouldn't trade the old Doug for the new one, which is ironic. And I even had a conversation with her, you know, and I asked her, I'm like, do you think that my, my life will be hindered in the afterlife? that I'll, I'll get, you know, punished in the afterlife because of my choices of, of removing my records from the church. And she said, no, like she, I see the work you're doing is so right and so good. And, and so we've really bonded and she, we, and it's really, it's so interesting now because not being a member of the church, we have spiritual discussions all the time. Now we talk about God and philosophy and what it's like to be the spirit and the Holy ghost. And I can use that lingo with her. Whereas before, when I was a member of the church, that stuff never resonated with me. So we could never have those conversations. So we even have more heartfelt conversations about God now than we ever did when I was at the church. It's just a great segment. I love love the family circle staying close. Mm -hmm. And I love the vulnerable, honest communication that you and your mom are having. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And Mm -hmm. it's just what I think God wants. Mm Mm-hmm. And you're a pretty honest, vulnerable, authentic guy. And I think that um, got some great skills there. Um, so I think, you know, parents, I'm talking not just your mom, but I think parents that have, have adult children that have stepped away the church, I, I think you shouldn't self-reflect and say, if only I'd done something different, or this mm-hmm. is my fault, or if I just taught this a little bit more, or had this a little bit more, I think you just can't go down that road. That's probably a trauma-filled road. Yeah, and I and I'm and not just, noticed. And just... You know, and don't, you know, don't put that on you. Yeah. Any thoughts for parents that are going down that road and need to be sort of de-traumatized or feel healing? Yeah, my mom is the perfect example of following the Savior. She's perfect, Christ-like, and has been the most incredible example. There's nothing she could have done, right? This, me, me going on my path was my journey which is going to be completely different than her journey, which is completely different than your journey, which is completely different than everyone's listening journey. We all have our own journey to go on. And there is nothing my mom could have done. And so I would hope, and I know she doesn't feel any remorse or whatever because it had nothing to do with her. I, I like that. And yeah. and perhaps, you know, I don't know how you feel about this, but uh, perhaps what your parents did in the home of creating a feeling of spirituality and God allowed you to when the church didn't, work out for you, be open to finding that somewhere else. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But the thought came to my mind. Um, other, I'd love other things you'd like to share with our listeners. I would just say we're whoever is listening to this and you feel the success void or another void or feel like there's something more, whether it's in the church or not, it doesn't matter to me, but just know that Wherever you are, regardless of your past, regardless of your trauma, regardless of your current situation, it is absolutely possible 
to create a beautiful, loving, magnificent, indescribable relationship with the creator. Whether you call him Heavenly Father or whether you call the universe, it doesn't matter. You can absolutely have the guidance you need and feel filled with love and joy and enthusiasm. And a beautiful life is possible. And I've been there where I had suicidal thoughts and out of the church to now feeling like every moment of my life, I have someone there by my side guiding me. I love that. Mm -hmm. I sometimes read a couple quotes. Um, Some of you heard these before. Some of you are listening just because you know Doug, but um, I'll read this from Henry Noron. Over the last few years, I've become increasingly aware that true healing mostly takes place through the sharing of weaknesses and, and maybe trauma would be another word. Mostly afraid of our weaknesses slash trauma that we hide them at all costs and they make them unavailable to others, but often to ourselves. And in this way, we end up living double lives, even against our own desires, one life in which we present ourselves to the world, to ourselves, to our gods, the person who is in control in another life, and we feel insecure, doubtful, confused, and anxious, and totally out of control. The split between these two lies can cause a lot of suffering. I become increasingly aware of the importance of overcoming the great chasm between these two lives. It is amazing in my own life that true friendship and community becomes possible to the degree that I was able to share my weaknesses slash trauma with others. I often become aware of the fact that in sharing of my weaknesses, the real depths of my human brokenness and weakness and sinfulness start to reveal themselves to me, not as a source of despair, but as a source of hope. As long as I try to convince others of my own independence, a lot of my energy is invested in building my own false self. But once I'm able to truly confess my, so depend, my profound dependence on others and God, I can come in touch with my true self and real community can develop. Hmm. Does that resonate with you or the parts of that you disagree with or agree with? No, I love that word. It reminds me of the Brene Brown quote yes. where it's like uh, vulnerability, you know, I don't I remember the exact quote, but like being going first and being vulnerable gives other people permission to be vulnerable. And at the end, how it talks about creating a sense of community, right? And when you go, when you take the first step and be vulnerable, it gives other people that opportunity and you create this new, really special, powerful connection that allows you to eventually heal through and move through those situations. It's a, yeah, Brene Brown has taught me a lot about mm-hmm. the word vulnerability. That Doug, that word wasn't in my vocabulary mm-hmm. five years ago yeah. much. And I just, culturally in our church, we're not very vulnerable. We don't right. value that. We, you were vulnerable in the first day home from your mission. Mm-hmm. So you're teaching us how to do that and being open. And then I love the way you connected the dots and you own your story and your yeah. vulnerability. But I think maybe it's obviously broader than the LDS church, but I think culturally we, it's hard to be vulnerable. We shouldn't be vulnerable in every situation, but I think you're really good at being vulnerable. Thank you. And you heal people. The other quote I love to share from the same author is, um, I don't know if how close Jake Watts is to your mm-hmm. age. Takes a little bit older. Is he a little yeah. older? He's the one that gave me this quote. Um, a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded about the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of a desert by someone who's never been there. Mm. So I look at you, Doug Cartwright, my friend, and you're the wounded healer. And so, and God is working through you to heal people because you know these deserts, these traumas, and you then have decided to put together a program. Mm -hmm. 
and it's bearing fruit. Because when I talk to Braden and I just see where that man is and some of the other people that I, I don't know as well, you're just healing people. And how, how happy is the divine with that? I have to wonder if your own father's aware of what you're doing. I'd like to hope so. And how pleased he is and how proud he is, just like your mom is. So talk, just you've done this already, but just close with a segment to those that are suicidal right now. Yeah, I think, you know, this. And then tell us your website. Yeah, it's a quote that really stood out to me when I was having suicidal thoughts was, if the divine didn't want us to feel depressed, anxious, overwhelmed, we wouldn't. Right? God has the power to take He created the universe. He has the power to do whatever he wants. So if if he didn't want us to feel those emotions, we wouldn't. And once you can reframe it, that how is this helping? How is this helping me? What can I learn from this? How is this making me better? Right? You know, I think everyone I've talked to about really intense, hard, difficult trials in their life. Once you get out of it, once once you've healed from it, you've got to the other side. I've never met anyone who would take that trial away, ever. And once you switch your mentality that life is happening for me, not to me, it's happening for me, it's for my growth, for my spiritual evolution, it allows you to look at these perspectives and these problems in a new lens. And when I was in this really dark spot and I'm like, okay, what can I control? What is this teaching me? That's when I started to slowly crawl myself out. It took a long time. I felt like I was still in a really depressed state for a year, but I was consistent and I worked hard at it and I got out. And so if you're in it, I promise you, you can get out, but at the same time, no one can do your pushups for you, which is kind of a relieving, empowering statement. So instead of waiting around for someone to come save you, it's kind of like, ah, this sucks, but it's up to me. And with consistent work, right? And that's why I, I built the course, right? And if you feel lost, if you don't know where to go, if you can't afford a therapist, because this therapist can be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars, right? Start with this course. I've made it extremely cheap for the listeners here. Go to the dailyshifts.com forward slash LLL. Um, and there's a special code there that makes it 65% off. And also I, I'm, I love talking to anyone. My DMs on Instagram are always open. It's at Doug, Doug underscore Cartwright. Um, message me. I promise you I'll message you back. And I would love cool. to hear your stories and love how I can help you in any way. I'm reminded on a lighter note, I'm interacting with you on Twitter. You're one of the... F- and I remember when you were working for Vivint, I tweeted out one day that to you, I think I said, mark my words, one day the Vivint Center will be called the Vivint Center. Uh, um, I can't remember what it was called before it was called the Vivint Center. Energy Solutions. Energy, and I just thought, you know, that's going to happen one day with this trajectory Vivint is. And then I'd forgotten about that tweet and you actually found it. Uh-huh. And when they renamed the Vivint Center and sent that back out, yep. um, it was just kind of a funny thing that happened. <laughs> um, and I've enjoyed some. Doug, um, this is just a great podcast. You're 31. You've got, you know, a long life ahead of you with foundational principles that will you're going to have a great, you are having a good life. It's not in the future. It's not after some new accomplishment or some new thing. It's now. Life is now. And you're having a great life right now. 
Um, you're going to have a great life each year of your life, and you're going to bring people along with you and provide hope and healing for the rest of your life. Isn't that so exciting? It is exciting. And what you shared in this podcast, and the, I would call them God-based principles that you've learned through really difficult journey that maybe could only be learned that way. I just love how you're sharing those with others. Thank you. And Margie, if you're listening to this podcast, what a proud mom moment for to hear your wonderful son and what he's doing for other people. And perhaps that's the biggest payday for us as parents is when we see our kids in a position where they're in such a great spot that they're able to help other people and love the Cartwright family. And thank you, Doug Cartwright, and for being on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. <laughs>